0: Hi, I'm Len App from Leanpub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Andre Burkov. Based in Quebec City, Andre is an expert in artificial intelligence and a senior data scientist leading a machine learning team at the global research and advisory firm Gartner. You can follow him on Twitter at burkov, great handle by the way, and read his articles by finding his profile on LinkedIn. Andre is the author of the best-selling book, The Hundred Page Machine Learning Book: Everything You Really Need to Know in Machine Learning in a Hundred Pages. Whether you're new to the topic or you're an expert in the field, the book provides a concise way to learn and to communicate and to think about some of the most important aspects of machine learning. If you're a business executive or you're working on the management side of things, it gives you the information you need to start asking, asking the right questions if you're approaching a problem that you think might be machine learnable. In this interview, we're going to talk about Andre's background and career, professional interests, machine learning and artificial intelligence generally. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a successful self-published author. So thank you for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast.
1: Thank you, Len, for, for inviting. I was hesitating, as you know, first, but uh, after a couple of uh, podcasts, I actually realized that uh, it's quite a pleasant experience. So thanks, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me once again.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. I uh, listened to a couple of podcasts that you did recently in preparing for this interview. And I'm really looking forward to our to our chat. So I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, Your story has quite a few chapters in it, I think it's fair to say. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology generally.
1: Well, um, I, I uh, was born in the Soviet Union uh, in 1980, and uh, the, my first uh, 11 years uh, I spent as a normal Soviet uh, schoolboy, and uh, then uh, the uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, my family and I we uh, become we have become part of Ukraine, and because m- my my parents uh, met in sevastopol when they uh, both uh, were students in sevastopol state university which is in crimea and they decided to well not decided but they managed to stay in crimea because uh, at the time of soviet union uh, young young engineers could not really uh, decide where they will uh, spend uh, uh, their the beginning of their career normally they were sent somewhere to the north uh, or some small uh, small city small town where there is some kind of uh, f- uh, factory and they need engineers but my uh, luckily my uh, my mother's father was a member of the communist party and high 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 profile member so he he managed to um, let my uh, people, my my parents uh, stay in Crimea. So I, I was lucky to to uh, uh, have have warm there because uh, it's like it's sunny, not so cold. Uh, there is uh, a sea that uh, you, the swimming season is quite quite long. So I've, I've got quite a, a nice uh, childhood. But uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, uh, it has become. Uh, Near to this disaster, like nobody got any job. Uh, my parents uh, tried to uh, like meet ants and uh, like work it everywhere possible and uh, sometimes the salary was paid in in uh, in food so uh, we uh, we spent like three years of my university uh, but, uh, bachelor's in uh, um, university without any electricity uh, in the city for three years and like i remember doing my homework uh, under the candlelight and uh, trying to do some uh, some high mathematics uh, and uh, in the university there were hours where uh, uh, the computer lab were open so you have to um, uh, subscribe for to have one hour to do all your uh, programming labs uh, programming uh, homeworks. If you don't manage to do it, there is another person waiting. So uh, you should you should really uh, think fast. And um, yeah, so I, I finished uh, uh, my uh, masters in the Sevastopol State University as a computer scientist uh, in the with the bias to, towards uh, network uh, computer network engineering. And uh, while I was a student, uh, the last uh, two two years, I was also a startup founder, uh, founder for several what they call it at the time uh, portals, like uh, online portals that uh, everybody wanted to build at the time at the, the, the dot com era, and uh, the portal that I uh, created to contain it, uh, almost everything like a typical start uh, portal should contain like. Uh, like weather uh, forecasts, uh, gay online games, uh, horoscopes, uh, forums, chats, and, and stuff like this, and it went well uh, until the crisis of, of dot coms, and uh, then during the crisis, my investor was still able to uh, to support my work for for a couple of hours, but then everybody was so disappointed with online. Uh, online market so uh, he said that nobody actually believes that uh, anything will work out or out of the internet activities and we closed it which was in retrospective uh, a mistake because just like several years after it's all restarted once again but uh, once uh, I, uh, I realized that I cannot continue working on my online startups I, I i quickly figured out that I will not easily find another investor, so I decided to move uh, somewhere where doing online business would be would be easier and uh, in the beginning i um, looked at uh, uh, at france france because uh, well we thought it uh, was very romantic with my ex wife to uh, to speak French and live somewhere like south of france uh, with uh, uh, Classic, typical French music around us, and so on. So we were young and romantic. Uh, and uh, when we started to learn French, um, uh, I started to look like at the uh, technical side of like immigrating uh, from from Ukraine to some Western country. And we quickly realized that uh, immigrating from Ukraine. Uh, into, in, into Europe would be very complicated and uh, normally you don't have the right to look for a job until you have the right to, like, to be permanently resident in France. So to get this permanent residency was also complicated because there were so many conditions like uh, having a job or being a student. So um, I started to look um, elsewhere and um, because we were... Pl- planning to go to somewhere French, I I was really lucky to find out that in Canada there is a province called Quebec uh, where uh, people speak French and there is a normal like uh, uh, immigration program where you can just uh, like fill some some forms, uh, describe your profile Prove that you can speak French, and uh, it's it's all becomes much much more easy.
0: Just to just to jump in there, thanks thanks a lot for that. That's such a such an interesting story, um, and uh, I have a lot of questions to ask uh, about the the next part of your your journey. I actually um, lived in Quebec for about six or seven years in Montreal myself, so I'm a little familiar with life there. And all, but also um, another sort of coincidence is that my grandparents immigrated to Canada from Ukraine. Quite, I mean, you know. In the early part of the 20th century, what precipitated their departure was some very well known political events uh, in um, i mean I'm, I shouldn 't be laughing about it, but you know in Russia and, and particularly in ukraine but before 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 talking about your adventures in Canada, so you were born in the Soviet Union and then you lived in an independent country called ukraine for uh, for a while and if but if you went back there now, it would be part of russia and I wanted to yeah. I wanted to ask you uh, if you can tell us a little bit about what life was like for people uh, during the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula by Russia, and whether whether or not you you personally were surprised by the whole thing,
1: um, well, I think that uh, the whole question is very will be well. The answer will be very different depending on. Uh, who you talk to and there are people who really enjoyed what happened and there, there, were, there were people who really suffered because of this uh, and I know about families being uh, split because for example um, my best friend from school uh, was a high profile uh, Ukraine mil- military officer and uh, he uh, he served in, in Crimea and when all, everything uh, happened Uh, He he was one of those who um, left uh, Crimea and uh, moved to to, uh, to, um, mainland Ukraine, if you want. And now uh, his parents live in Crimea. They have lots of property there, and they actually, like, uh, wanted their their son to live there with them and so on. But their son cannot even go to see them to Crimea because uh, no military from Ukraine can... Can actually go to 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 Crimea anymore, so there there are families broken, and uh, I should, uh, well, it's like unavoidable when conflicts like this happen. But as I said, it's one one uh, side of the coin. Another side of the coin that there were a lot of families uh, who actually, from the very beginning, from the from the very beginning of the Soviet Union collapse, actually failed betrayed by Yeltsin uh, uh, because Yeltsin agreed that Crimea will become part of Ukraine after the collapse. And uh, I myself, I come from a Russian, ethnical Russian family. So for us, uh, speaking Russian and uh, our Russian identity was very important. And I should admit that uh, Ukraine wanted uh, like like Ukrainize, if you want, like convert uh, Russians into Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian way of doing things, and not uh, not many ra- ethnical Russians who who left in, in Crimea actually enjoyed this. And I could give you some like very simple example. For example, if you buy drugs in in pharmacy, the instructions for the for the drugs was only in Ukrainian. Even if you're native Re- Russian and you don't speak Ukrainian you don't read Ukrainian you have to like buy uh, drugs with uh, uh, instruction in Ukrainian on your own risk so if you misinterpret the um, the directions it could be really like risky or if you go to to cinema all movies were in Ukrainian you can you have no choice like to watch movies in your own language so from this this perspective i think a lot of people really wanted to uh, become part of russia whether they are happy now, it's another question, because it went, according to my parents, it, it all went very smoothly, so there were no quite any, any violence. Maybe one person died or something like this. But um, what, it, what, create, what the, the whole situation created around Crimea is, is isolation. And this isolation uh, is especially felt by young people. Because, like for for my parents, they, they are they are fine. They their retirement uh, uh, allocation has like doubled, uh, so they really enjoy their life there. Russia invests a lot of money to make the wall uh, to like renew the wall infrastructure, and it's actually seen. I was there uh, twice after the the annexation, and I really saw the difference. So Russia really invests a lot in, in, into Crimea. But uh, the problem is that for young people, um, they feel like they cannot go anywhere because uh, if you want to like to travel, you know, you need a passport, and no, no country will let you use uh, a Russian uh, passport for travel if you are from 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 Crimea. so you have to go to mainland Ukraine and make a demand for 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 passport. And it's complicated because you are from from the uh, what they call uh, uh, okay, temporarily occupied territory. So there are specific uh, uh, legislation that governs all those requests. So it's complicated for for people who are mobile, like me, for example, who would like to be able to live a normal, comfortable life. So the, all this all this isolation makes uh, young people question whether. Um, they en- really enjoy all that the, that uh, they have got, and I think that there is no like right answer or right solution to the situation because you cannot trade your uh, e- your ethnical identity to get something in return. So uh, it's like, for example, in uh, in Spain there is a um, uh, how it's called, the region. Catalonia? Catalonia, yes. Uh, and it's a very similar situation. So according to the constitution of, of Spain, Catalonia cannot split without the, the, the uh, referendum all over the Spain. And they believe that they will never win this kind of referendum. It was exactly for, the same for Crimea. Ukraine was a, unit, a unitary state, So Crimea was not a part of like some sort of federation where you can uh, just vote to like Quebec, for example, can just vote to not become part of Canada anymore. And it's by constitution. But Crimea couldn't vote out. So you cannot solve this kind of problem easily without long term consequences and how long those long term consequences will will last It's it's very, very, very hard to say, but it should last generations, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Thanks very much for that excellent explanation. Um, uh, I spent three weeks in Kiev in the early 2000s at one point, and I remember, you know, I had to choose would I learn a little bit of Russian or would I learn a little bit of Ukrainian before I went there, and it was only when I I chose Russian because I'm a big fan of Russian literature, Um, and my grandpa spoke spoke the language. Um, But... uh, I realized when i got there how fraught that decision Mm -hmm. really was or at least how it came across to people when i would explain oh yeah and so i chose russian and they're like i got different reactions um so so you you moved from one place with uh cultural and linguistic tensions to another Um, (laughs) uh i I remember you know being in quebec every once in a while people would tell me to speak french and things like that um Uh, and you you so you you knew a little bit of French, but so you moved there, and, as I gather from your story, you looked around for a job and discovered you needed more time to learn some more French, and so you decided to become a student at the University of Laval i think yeah what was that experience like uh starting to study in a language that you you didn't really speak very well well, i
1: wasn't prepared to that uh, honestly uh, um, we myself and my my ex-wife we underestimated how hard it can be to move from uh post soviet republic to uh, to some western uh, western country because it's such a big difference in mentality and uh, uh cultural and uh, like just functional like like how how society works and we learned everything the hard way because we didn't have anyone in place to tell us uh, what is the best uh, thing to do. Like, for example, like a cra- crazy thing that many immigrants uh, uh, do once they immigrate to Canada is that they keep all um, bills from all companies uh, forever because they they think that maybe so one day... Uh, uh the government will, will want to verify if something and they will will not have this paper with them so they 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 keep all bills like for for gas electricity uh mm-hmm. water, water and so on so there is so much things that you like think that uh, is true in 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 the western uh, western society which is not actually true for example when i w- when like my first year i was a student and I um, I used bike to go to university and my backpack, uh, and I, I I need to go. I needed to to buy something at the grocery store. It was the first time I go there, so I enter the the grocery store and I I have a backpack. So like I automatically think that I should put it somewhere because uh, otherwise they will not believe that my backpack was empty or something like this. So I asked the the um, the, uh, the woman at the at the cashier like where can I put my my backpack and she looks at me like very surprised and kind of I don't know why do you want to put it somewhere and I'm like because uh, otherwise how would you know that my my back my back, backpack was empty when I when I leave the the, the store and she was like uh, okay you can put it here at the cashier so I felt so felt so embarrassed because it was crazy for me to think that they will just believe like trust everyone who enters the the, the store that they will actually pay for everything they 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 took so uh, and lots of things like this like I, sometimes when we have like um, evenings. Uh, Parties at work, uh, I I start <laughs> counting, uh, telling about all those uh, stories, uh, me in the first years uh, of immigration, and everybody's laughing because there is so much, uh, like, things that you think are true which are not necessarily true. And for many immigrants, uh, they never end up actually knowing how the society uh, work where they live because, for example, you saw yourself in Montreal. There are there are communities where there are Ukrainians, communities where there are Russians, Chinese, Indians, and so on. So, if you, for, for example, why we did uh, choose to to move to Quebec City is because I didn't want to be part of any ethnical community. I actually wanted to, like, learn. Uh, the other uh, the other uh, way of of living and see actually how uh, normal like traditional society in Canada uh, lives uh, their values uh, how how people behave how people think and I, I think that in the long term I made the right decision but it's it was a hard decision and it was a hard way to learn stuff because there is no one to actually answer any of your questions. In 2005, I, when we immigrated, I think we were among many, maybe 80, maybe 100 Russians overall living in in Quebec City. So there were no such thing such thing as a Russian community. So we learned everything the hard way. But now I think that I really enjoy being part of of this uh, Quebec or Canadian uh, society. My my children. Uh, who were born in Canada don't feel like they are different from any other kids of their age, and we actually like uh, behave and have the life, lifestyle of a typical uh, Quebec, uh, Quebec family. We don't forget our Russian roots, of course. We speak Russian at home. We, we watch uh, movies in Russian. Uh, we meet with uh, uh, people from Russia from time to time, but Otherwise, uh, we are just a normal Canadian uh, family. So I think that it was, it, it was worth it, I guess.
0: I've got a very specific question about being an immigrant in, in Quebec. So I, my understanding of the way the education system works for children is that essentially they get not ethnically but linguistically profiled before they enter school. And mm-hmm. if you're from one background... If you're not from an English speaking, if you're determined not to be from an English speaking background, the government will not permit you to yeah. to go to like well the parents to send their children to an Eng, a primarily English language school. Did you did you encounter that system? Yes, it, it's exactly
1: like this. And this one part that I actually against uh, and I'm vocally against. Uh, I regularly post uh, on LinkedIn about. Uh, uh, ma- major limitations that uh, Quebec um, applies to um, to people from other countries who, who who live there, and not just that in Quebec there are there are many other problems like for example the the whole government administration costs uh, like much more to to the taxpayer than they pay than in other other provinces. Uh, but uh, talking about this language question, yeah, uh, so um, as an immigrant from non english speaking country, i don't have right to send my kids to a non french uh, speaking public school. however, I could send them to a to a private school so uh, uh, it just concerns like public schools because they say that if the schools are financed from public money then uh french French language should be taught uh, as a prim- as a primary language however um, I should say that uh, in the the last year of the primary school so it's the sixth year uh, they children spend almost a half of the year in a fully english speaking environment, so they have uh ten days or, like, five days of classes in French, and then another five days of classes only in English. And it's, it's forbidden, actually, to speak French during those five uh, English, uh, English days. So, um, my children, I think they speak uh, English, start speaking English very well, and despite all those uh, legislation, for example like there is a, a law that inter, uh, interdicts uh, using other languages than french in working environments however most of uh, companies uh, today um, you speak both languages uh, like i mean english and, and french so there is no there is no any discrimination like that you would feel but there are still laws that uh, that are still active and sometimes uh government decides to enforce those laws and it creates a lot of friction in the society so there is no like a, a universal support of this um, uh french uh, uh french language uh, um, domi- domination so we, all young generations, like i count myself as a young generation and especially people who are still in college or university, everybody understands that you cannot live in Canada and only speak French because you isolate yourself from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So I think that um, it was at some point important to preserve French as a um, as a primary primary language, but in the modern society. You cannot just isolate yourself uh, from the rest of the uh, of the world and say uh, we are uh, we, keep, we we will lose our identity if we don't uh, if we uh, forbid other languages to be used and I think it's not true because I don't lose my Russian identity. I speak Russian with my kids and with my parents uh, regularly. I still feel myself uh, as Russian even if I speak French most of the time at work or 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 English so the identity is not necessarily related to language and not, nothing forces you to really like forget french i like take take uh, europe for example Swe- sweden like in sweden english it's like the second uh, second primary language they speak english as well as as swedish but they don't forget swedish they use it all the time in their normal daily life it's just that when you uh, when you work with uh, such a diverse uh, 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 people from all over, over the world English is the language that lets you communicate effectively so I think in English it's a universally like a universal uh, inter uh, interculture uh, inter-country inter, inter language and you have to learn, know it so there are some laws that still, still exist I think that it will take time before those laws will be relaxed and uh, I think that immigration I- is part of we have to solve uh, the immigration part before we start solving the um, the language part because um, immigration which is not uh, where where people come from Canada and stay in the ghettos or in in some local communities forever i don't think it's very beneficial for 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 the country so first of all we have to find ways. To make uh, immigrants like actually integrate the society and make this experience uh, 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 pleasant and not like force people to move somewhere or something like this. So it's not an easy question, but yeah, I agree that uh, there are some restrictions that I don't really uh, find uh, appropriate in the 21st uh, century.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. That's, thank you for that very nuanced explanation of things. I mean, there is, there is a distinction between what the sort of formal laws are and what the day-to-day lived life is like. Um,
1: yes, yeah, I can give you an example. For example, in, in, in Quebec, uh, you cannot drink uh, alcohol um, on the street. Uh, but if you are sitting on a terrace uh, in the downtown and you drink wine or, or beer, it's okay even if children will see you drinking wine you are part of of uh, like environment in which it's it's okay even there are public places like parks where there are like uh, wooden tables and everybody can just like any family can can get to the park like cover the table um, and put some some food and a bottle of wine and you can drink it and no poly, no uh, uh a police officer will tell you anything about this, but everybody knows that it's against the law. So if you have very strict laws, but you apply them with moderation and it's like with, uh, with a thought, it's okay. I think to protect French language, it's okay. But if you force, like, for example, um, there is a uh, big network of grocery stores in Quebec call it Metro, and the government actually wanted to force them to put the accent on the, over the E <laughs> to, to make it f- look French-looking. I think it's ridiculous, so uh, we have to apply laws with, uh, by thinking about consequences.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, when, when people might when Ke- when Quebec kind of comes up in the in the in the headlines, it's often because kind of hardliners are and the language police are, which there is there is an institution that can be appropriately referred to that way. They will go around and try to make you put the accent on the on the letter, yeah. or you know, not not use an, even an English name like McDonald's or something like that mm-hmm. with the apostrophe, and and you know, um. But but the, the day-to-day lived life, you know, people have their ways of getting along with each other. For example, I mean, it's a little bit different in, in Montreal because there are so many tourists there, I think, although Quebec City gets its fair share of tourists as well. But if you just barge into a place that's obviously a primarily French-speaking business and you just start speaking in English, it's a little bit rude and you learn very quickly. Try Try French first pretty quickly just to get... Get it over with. Whoever you're speaking with will probably start speaking to you in English. But but these little these little signals that you give of kind of that you understand the overall tension uh, mm. actually are, are are things that people have more or less worked out.
1: I think that it it it's very it depends a lot on your education as well. So for example, um, I work with very uh, highly educated people, and we. All believe that uh, English or French or whatever is just a way of of expressing yourself. So, for example, when we talk uh, during the, uh, the during the lunch, we have people who speak English and other people reply in French. So we have like bilingual conversations easily. So I prefer speaking uh, French and some people uh, at work prefer to speak english and we uh, and we just use two languages when, when we speak and it, it it's 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 very fluent and there is no any clash uh, in this so educated people understand that language is just a way of communication people with less education and more like pre 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 how it's called prejudice, prejudice Princess. uh well, they could maybe judge you for not speaking French, but i would be I will be completely honest i, I live in Quebec City from two thousand five and never ever uh experienced any uh negative uh, like uh, negative perception by people from Quebec, so normally people are very friendly and they ask you where your accent is from, where are you from yourself, oh, you are you a Russian, oh, this and that, and uh, sometimes they, when I uh, was not as good in French as now and I started to speak, try to speak French to people, they switch it uh, easily to English and try to talk to me in English just to simplify the, the communication. So. Of course, there are still people who believe that uh, some, in, in some nationalistic national, an idea and that Quebec City or Quebec in general should be, should be 100% French, but it's, it's very highly exaggerated if you look from the outside. If you live inside, people are just people, and there are no good people or bad people. There are just people. So there are sometimes uh, people with wrong uh, opinion in my in, in, from my sense, but uh, there is no any violence or something like this uh, against uh, immigrants.
0: I'm sure we could talk about this at length. It's such a it's such a deep and interesting experience, yes. especially to move into uh, as an outsider. Um, uh, but getting back to your your career, uh, so you decided in the mid 2000s to study artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't the Prominent field at that time uh, that it has become since. What what led you to study artificial intelligence for your uh, masters and your PhD?
1: You know, uh, every time you, everyone looks at their uh, their path in life. A lot in in this path is uh, an accident or a chance. So uh, people either use those chances or not. It depends, but. Very few depend really on, on our choice. So when I moved to Canada, I tried to, to find a job in, in, in IT. I realized that my French level was not enough uh, to be effective uh, at work. So I, I decided to go to, to study once again, even if I told myself back in, in, in Ukraine, university never again. I, I, I changed my mind. So I went to university because it was the only environment which I knew well. It, and in my opinion, it should it, it should be similar to university in any other country. So I went to university and uh, I subscri- inscri- uh, subscribed to the program of uh, what they call second cycle. It's like uh, a graduate program, uh, master- but it wasn't master's. It was like just a graduate pro- program. In, in, in Computer science. and during the first uh, semester it was really hard. Uh, as I said, uh, my language was really not so good, and all classes in University of Laval are given in French. So I was one of few uh, students uh, uh, who didn't whose language wasn't uh, wasn't French. I, I, there was, there were, was another girl uh, with, from Iran. Uh, or Iran, I don't know what's the wrong pronunciation, and uh, another guy from from Belarus. So we could speak Russian and explain to one another what we uh, managed to understand uh, (laughs) during the class. So, yeah, So um, and while I was uh, like the first uh, trimester student, I started to look around and see uh, if there are possibilities to to, to start uh, a master's and to have some kind of um, internship and I met with several um, my then uh, uh, professors and they all told me that they could find money but not right away so I have to wait but they uh, they one of them sent me sent me to a um, uh, director of the uh, uh, multi-agent systems laboratory and like uh, they they told they told me that he might have money like uh, to 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 pay the internship uh, like from the day one so I met uh, he was my uh, he has become my um, uh, my director for master's and phd Brahim Shabdra and uh, his, lab, his lab was specialized in, in multi-agent systems, but they also were interested in, in machine learning and in reinforcement learning, how to, how to make uh, agents uh, behave uh, in a collaborative or in a competitive way, effectively. So uh, my, uh, t- uh, my topic for master's and PhD was in uh, game theory. So, for example, if you watched uh, uh, Beautiful Mind uh, about uh, famous mathematician John Nash, so my biggest contribution in my PhD was an algorithm that computes a Nash equilibrium in repeated uh, games. So a, a repeated game is when the same players play the same game over and over again, and uh, it's, uh, the solution to, the solution is how, to, how you have to behave, okay? And the solution depends a lot whether it's a one-time interaction or it's a repeated interaction, because in one-time interaction, you can assume that there will be no consequences if you don't collaborate with other peers. But if the interaction is repeated, you can you can assume that if you don't collaborate, then your peers will be able to punish you in the long term. So the solution to uh, repeated uh, games is very different to the solution to one-shot, what we call one-shot games. So I'm very I'm very proud about my contribution, and I see that my my paper that I published in uh, AAAI, which is one of the uh, best uh, top, top-tier uh, AI confer- uh, conferences it's very it's, it's very cited and uh, every year i have about dozens uh, citation of my of my paper so from this point of view i am proud of my achievement as a, as a phd and masters and phd student but i think i'm much more proud about my achievement with the book because the impact that my phd uh did is very local like uh, only a few Maybe maybe a dozen people in the world will actually read my paper and appreciate the the contribution. But with the book, I already uh, estimate uh, the that uh, my book has been read uh, more than uh, ten thousand times. So uh, it's, it's just like in a month after its release. So I think this uh, achievement is much more. Uh, satisfying than, than, than PhD.
0: Yeah, I've got quite a few questions to ask you about your book uh, in a little bit, um, but I think this actually gives me an opportunity to segue into a question um, I often ask of people I interview on this podcast, which is if you were starting out now as mm-hmm. a young person looking for a career in, in tech generally, you know, being a software engineer or a computer engineer, would you go to university again for an undergraduate degree?
1: Uh, I said... Today, yes, I, I would still go this route because um, online education is in the in the stage of very early stage. Even if it was a huge success, like for example Coursera and and and, and places like this, it's still not sure whether uh, these uh, diplomas in the long term uh, actually. Means that uh, the the person is quali- is very will be will become a very qualified uh, qualified worker, so I think that it's too early to say that okay the traditional education is no no longer relevant and also it's very uh, it's more relevant in IT in computer science but it's much less relevant in you know, let's say uh, if you want to become an architect uh, to build to to to, to construct buildings. Or you want to become uh, a, a a physician, so there is not uh, like an easy way to become one of those very uh, complex uh, professions. So in computer science, uh, the world computer science become more and more uh, accessible. So it's easy to um, to t- uh, teach computer science uh, by on, uh, uh, by distance. But there are uh, professions where you actually have to have a direct contact with, with a professor, a direct contact with your peers. You have to have lots of interactions individually and as a group. So this is what online education could not uh, offer. But if you ask me, like, I am I I consider myself as a pro- progressist, so I actually believe that the traditional education, uh, which has roots in uh, 20s in the early 20th century, today uh, is less relevant. But it's it, it's not just uh, doing bachelors or not. It's uh, starts from the from the primary school to the high to, to the high school to the bachelors to the masters uh this whole system was designed to uh, to prepare factory workers and today we are so div- uh, the same th- the things we do are so different that uh trying to teach everyone to do exactly the same it might be the wrong way but there is no the right way nobody actually like uh, revolutionized the education by offering something that will replace this uh, system that t- teach everyone the same thing by something more more individual. Individual. For example, I would appreciate if in in school um, s- s- school could could look at my my children's uh, like uh, talents and adapt education to develop those talents. That that would be great. But the cost of such individual in education would be much higher as well. And if because you you you. Lived in, in in Quebec, you know that in Quebec already um, uh, taxes are over the roof. So I'm not sure that many parents would uh, be able to pay even more for some kind of different education. So there is no like right answer. I think that in some cases maybe the, the degree is not necessary, like uh, like in computer science. But there are many other like uh, many other um, directions of education, which you cannot just uh, teach the same way.
0: It's interesting you bring up uh, the taxes in Quebec. That that leads me to my next question. So there you are, you, you graduate with this hotshot PhD in artificial intelligence, um, mm-hmm. and you're in Quebec City where the taxes are high and where uh, there are these restrictions on how children can be educated, and it's kind of remote, and it's very cold, and you decided to stay. Um, <laughs> so I would like to know, ask you uh, why you decided to stay and um, what you what you then did.
1: Well, uh, first of all, um, I think that uh, there is no optimal place uh, on, on this on this planet. So wherever you go, what what they say, you bring yourself with you. So uh, I think our our biggest challenge is within ourselves and not outside. So I think that Quebec is, is a good place to live. Of course, it has its own uh, problems, as you mentioned and we discussed uh, earlier. But you cannot find any place where there are no problems. I thought many times to move to California because there are so many uh, hot startups there and uh, lots of opportunities. But California has its its own challenges uh, that I might uh, under, uh, underestimate uh, before moving there. And uh, I thought about maybe uh, retiring somewhere in the uh, south of France because I speak French. And it's not, I don't say no to this, to, to these plans, but at the same time, my children most likely will stay uh, in Canada or, or maybe not so but if they stay in Canada I would like to stay close to, to my children so moving as I said is it's a it's a it's a challenge and we are already uh, uh, survived one move from one country to another so thinking about moving something else uh, somewhere else uh, it's not as easy as it might uh, might seem and i I'm already thirty uh, almost thirty nine uh, years old so it's at some point you have to decide uh, whether you want to move all your life or you you want to settle down and just like uh, uh, try to get uh, the best of where you you are now i think that compared to where i Came from Canada and Quebec in particular. It's it's a nice place to be. Uh,
0: and so you found a job there uh, initially, working for Fujitsu, I think. mm mm-hmm. And uh, what did you do for them?
1: Well, um, when I was uh, still a PhD student, uh, one of uh, ex uh, PhD students of my my uh, my uh, uh, direct uh, director, uh, he was a um, project manager at Fujitsu, and uh, artificial intelligence at the time, uh, in 2010, was not as hot as it is today. So everybody spoke about it in uh, in California, and maybe it, it was, was one of the reasons why I uh, thought about moving there at some point, but in Quebec, it was still like AI, who needs that? It's just like it's it's for scientists only. It never will never work. And um, he he was a manager there, and he invited me to join him because uh, at at the the time Fujitsu wanted to uh, build a uh, innovation center. In, in in Quebec City, and they actually managed to get government support, fin- financial and support from um, main Fujitsu from, from Japan. So it it was all uh, was about to start. So he said that it would be a good opportunity for you if you join us now, and then you, when we become big, it will play well for your, for your, for your career. So I, I accepted because I was interested to work with Japanese technologies and uh, to innovate and so on. But unfortunately, um, it, the whole process of building Innovation Center would, took much more time than uh, everybody could uh, could think. So after two years, uh, they still were like in the very beginning and uh, people start, uh, started to lose, lose patience. Many people left uh, the, the Innovation Center initiative and i also uh, felt like I, I spent two years uh, not doing exactly what i wanted to do so i started to look around and i found a small quebec um, quebec uh, brew company called wanted analytics who um, uh, specialized in uh, te- in the talent marketplace analytics uh, automated talent marketplace at analytics so they downloaded job descriptions from, from the Internet and try to extract uh, information from those job descriptions. For example, uh, what domain it is, uh, what kind of skills are re- requested, uh, what kind of salary offered, how, I, how how long this specific job offering re- remains online. And they built all, all kind of models uh, for uh, big enterprises to uh, help them f- like orient their uh, talent planning where they have to look for this specific profile, how long time, ta- how long it will take to find this specific profile, how much should I pay to this specific profile? So there, is, there were a lot of interesting questions that we could uh, s- like squeeze out of job descriptions, and I actually like felt like it's an interesting uh, product, and there is so many, so many things that. Um, where machine learning uh, could be applied. So as soon as I saw that they looked for a data analyst, I, I sent them a link to my LinkedIn profile, and they called me for an interview, and I passed. So it was in 2013, I guess. So since then, uh, Wanted Analytics was bought by one big American uh, consulting company called CB. And one year later, uh, Gartner acquired CEB. So this is how I uh, found myself uh, working for Gartner. But so I, I, I switched like three uh, different different countries without leaving my my office. <coughs> well, sorry, uh, I mean companies. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I have one just before moving on to talk about your book. I have one question about that. So for people in the tech sector, most of them are familiar with Gartner um, because Gartner issues these quadrants more or less kind of. Ranking, ranking companies yep. and startups and things like that. So, for those of us who only who, who mostly understand Gartner from the, I'd love to be in the quadrant side of things. Uh, what interest does Gartner have in, in in acquiring a company like, like Wanted?
1: Well, uh, actually, uh, when Gartner acquired CEB, only then uh, we were uh, told that actually Gartner looked at it Wanted before CEB bought Wanted, but for Gartner. I wanted was too small uh, as, as, as an acquisition, so they uh, they um, didn't decide to make uh, make an offer. But for CB we were okay, and for for CB we f- we fitted in their uh, in their um, um, list of services that they offered to different companies. So CB was kind of best practices company. So we, talk, we have multiple clients, and we analyze how different clients work, and then we write my best practices document that we sell to, uh, to all clients. So it's a subscription model, and all clients are happy about this. They are happy to share their best practices because they get good advice in return. So uh, for CEB, this acquisition was part of uh, their uh, desire to uh, also... Offer uh, consulting in the talent uh, talent space, and before buying um, Wanted, they also bought a company in India called Talent Neuron, and it was similar uh, in the um, in the spirit to to Wanted, but Wanted was much more automated. So what we did, we actually did come mostly automatically, but ta- Talent Neuron was. More, more uh, manual. So they actually look at at uh, data online, uh, build some kind of models to, to fill uh, data databases manually. And we did uh, similar stuff, but automatically. So for them ac- acquiring us, it was like uh, idea was that uh, they will learn from us how to automate. Uh, Different data acquisition data processing modeling tasks that we uh, learned to do uh, through decades, so uh, for CB it was quite a planet acquisition, but Gartner bought CB without actually thinking about us. They actually discovered that that uh, talent neuron and wanted analytics were a part of CB post acquisition and now. Uh, uh, talent neuron and wanted uh, are merged all under one roof called talent neuron and it's one of the uh, biggest priorities uh, in um, uh, advisory services of of Gartner and mostly because the the amount of data that we have accumulated uh, f- uh, for the last uh, uh, 15 i guess no oh, 19 years it's 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 amazing how how, many, uh, how much data we have uh, and we, we know who hired it for what kind of, uh, kind of what kind of skills in 2002 2005 2019 and we actually can build uh, models that spans uh, through through years and we can predict uh, how different uh, occupations uh, would evolve uh, by looking at how they did evolve in the past. So this kind of data, very few company on the market have. Like Google, for example, just started to download and index job job off a job posting. So they don't have this amount of data as as we do. And uh, so we have several competitors, but uh, data uh, data wise, we it's hard to beat what we have.
0: Speaking of modeling and data, that gives us a good going into the next part of the interview where we talk about your, your book. Uh, what, was the, what was the inspiration for the book?
1: Well, it, it was quite kind of funny because uh, I never actually planned to write a, any book. I knew that it's a very time-consuming and energy-consuming uh, activity, and uh, uh, I already worked it on my PhD thesis, uh, thesis, so I could say that it's not easy to write something readable and especially Useful and interesting to read, so I always considered this as a not a good investment of the time because I, I knew also that authors often get maybe uh, 10% if they are lucky from each uh, book sale. So for me, it was like the effort didn't uh, worth um, uh, the outcome. But uh, because, as you know, I have a, a quite an active uh, community. On LinkedIn, I have about 80k uh, uh, followers uh, now. So, uh, at, at some point uh, in September or October 2018, I uh, wake up in my in my bedroom and I, I watched I, I, I look at the um, at the books that I have uh, uh, in my bedroom, and I ha- I have I had maybe about like half a dozen uh, books on machine learning. And I realized that I bought those books, but I never finished a- any one of those. I read some chapters that was of interest for me a- at the time, but never be able to like, start a book from first page and uh, go through, uh, through the whole text till the last page. And I asked myself, why, why is this? And the answer that I've got is that those books are too uh, thick uh, for the busy life that we currently have. We never have time to actually uh, sit down, uh, um, like make a cup of tea and uh, read uh, for, for some long period of time. So we we always running. We are always working on something like children, uh, job, uh, sport, and so on. So we try to try to do everything at the same time. So most of the time, if we need information, we Google it instead of buying buying the book and, and read it through. So I, I write I, I have I have written a post on LinkedIn by saying that uh, modern books on machine learning are too thick. Uh, and they are too technical for an average person like an engineer or a scientist from another domain to actually, like, be able to buy this book and read it from A to Z. And I said, I wrote that if I was to write a, a machine learning book, it would be a 100-page book. So it was just a post like this without really <laughs> – I never planned to – uh, prove anything that I would actually be able to write this book. But uh, somehow the post has become uh, very popular. It has got about a thousand likes and several hundred uh, hundreds comments. And uh, there are two kinds of comments, uh, that the most frequent ones. Uh, first kind is people saying that it's impossible, so uh, machine learning books are so thick for the reason you cannot just uh, like squeeze it without losing in clarity or in some important detail so if there is a, some detail in the book it's because uh, it's, it's needed it was the first reaction the second reaction is was like oh my god if you are able to write this book I will buy it because I'm so afraid of those thousand page books which are typical in machine learning that I will never be able to read a thousand pages uh, in my life especially on a, such a complex subject like full of math and uh some uh difficult to to get ideas so I thought about this for a week or so I talked to my parents and they said well you, you have nothing to lose try to try to write several chapters and you will see if, if it goes well so I wrote uh, the first three chapters and uh, It was about, like, 30 pages total. And uh, the first three chapters included introduction, uh, basic math uh, and statistics, and the description of the most important machine learning algorithms, uh, like uh, support vector machines, logistic regression, um, uh, decision trees, uh, linear regression, and uh, K nearest neighbors, I guess. So once I, like finished the third chapter, I actually felt like there is not so much remaining to, to, to describe. There are uh, neural networks, there are some uh, ensemble methods, and uh, there are there is also unsupervised learning. But unsupervised learning usually has much less uh, algorithms and it's used not as much as supervised learning, so I didn't expect to write a lot about uh, unsupervised. So I decided to put these three chapters online and say that I will continue putting uh, new chapters online on the go. As soon as they are ready, I will put them online. So I created a website and, uh, with a subscription, and people started to subscribe. So at the time when I finished to, to write the book, it took me about three months, and uh, their, their mailing list already contained about 10,000 uh, people. And I just sent, uh, when I published the book on Amazon, I just sent an announcement that the book is now uh, ready. You can, uh, you can buy it if you want. And also, I think a uh, good idea was to put the book online under uh, the, this principle of uh, read first, buy later, which means that you can read the book in full. And only if you feel like the, the book Actually, was useful for you. You enjoyed the read. You you can now apply the knowledge, for example, in your uh, study or your business or your work. Only then you you should buy it. If you, for some reason, feel like it wasn't worth the time, then it's okay. And I think that people really liked the this whole idea from the day one. And I received a lot of uh, uh, comments. From people who read the book uh, while I was working on it. And I received a lot of uh, like corrections, uh, suggestions how to improve uh, the text, how to change sentence uh, so that it it sounds more naturally and so on. So when I uh, like ended working on on the book, uh, I, in my list of contributors, uh, I had about 60. People and uh, many of them actually read almost all chapters, so the contributions were not like sporadic, but uh, in many cases were, were systematic. So I was quite uh, quite sure that the quality of the book was good. But if I knew how uh, big the success would be, would be, I would probably pay a, a professional copy editor to like pass over the whole text and maybe find some, some places where the text could be slightly improved. But I'm quite sure that the, the quality is still very good.
0: Yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of questions about um, the, the mechanics of how you wrote and published the book and how it became such a success uh, in a couple minutes. But just before moving on, um, for those listening, I've got you, you're an expert. What is, what is machine learning? You have a good description right, at the, right off the bat in your book about where the term comes from.
1: Yeah, well, uh, as, I, as I say I, I, in my book, there are like two definitions of machine learning. One definition is it's a part of computer science which uh, wants to build uh, uh, computer programs that do some, uh, some work for us without us explicitly defining how this work should be done. So uh, machine learning, it's about giving examples and uh, the algorithm uh, is being uh, constructed automatically, which is uh, based on those examples you give. This is one definition of machine learning. Another definition is, is it is an activity that you do to actually build those, uh, those, pro- uh, those uh, algorithms. So we can say I do some machine learning. Or you can you can say I use machine learning to do something. So in both in both cases it involves gathering a data set which contains of examples and you give some labels to those examples. The easiest example is uh, building a spam detector and you gather a data set of emails and to every email you as, uh, associate a label like spam or not spam and the machine learns. Uh, automatically to distinguish spam messages from non-spam messages.
0: And what is the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence?
1: Well, again, uh, depending on uh, on uh, how you view an artificial intelligence, it, it could be uh, an activity or it could be a long-term uh, dream. So when we when we build something, for example, a solution for business, okay, Uh, a solution for business will maybe based on some machine learning model, but this solution is much more complex than just this model because it's it's also how the input from the user is converted into something that machine can, can perceive and then machine makes some sort of prediction and then you have to show to the user the, the result of this prediction so that the user can interpret it and use it somehow in their, in their daily life or business. So this whole solution with uh, input preparation, output, uh, post-processing, what we call uh, artificial intelligence system. So machine learning is just some integral part, like, like a core of it, but it's not, it's not all so artificial intelligence is a machine le- usually it's a machine learning based uh, uh, product uh, but also artificial intelligence it's a long term goal and long term research uh, ho- uh, like dream of people to build a machine that uh, eventually will be able to interact with us just like we interact with one another and this is where i think that there is uh, artificial intelligence is overhyped uh, right now Because people often mix uh, these two definitions in one, and they think that we actually, when we say that I've built an artificial intelligence system, that we actually build some some kind of thinking machine that we can actually interact with and talk about anything and so on. We are very, very, very far from this dream, and uh, I would say that today there is no clear idea even how to get to... uh, to the, to the result that we uh, dream about.
0: And um, another thing that's sort of famous around the the subject of artificial intelligence is very famous and well-known people warning us about impending doom. If we don't do something now, Mm -hmm. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? Are you worried about whether it's really a thinking thing or not? Are you worried about what we refer to as artificial intelligence, you know, taking over?
1: Well, again, as a practitioner, I think that uh, we are nowhere even close to a machine that will, uh, will realize that it exists, realize uh, that it is uh, a, some sort of intelligence and understand its place in, on, the, on, on this planet and then look at us around it and decide whether the machine needs us around it or maybe we are just uh, like some kind of noise I think we are we are nowhere close to it, but I think there is a fear, and I'm not. I wouldn't say that I really like think about every uh, about this every day, but sometimes, especially when I, I'm asked this kind of question, yes. I think that uh, what people really afraid of, what they call singularity, is when we create something, and it's based on very simple idea, and we don't think that it will be, be able to become something more than this uh, simple algorithm. But this algorithm is just a little bit uh, more intelligent than, every, intelligent than everything we have built before, and it's sufficiently intelligent to be able to improve itself. And if this algorithm is be able to improve itself, it will become more and more and more intelligent, and this loop of improvement can be quite fast, especially if you uh, run this algorithm on an infrastructure like Google, for example, has with uh, tens of thousands of GPUs and uh, interconnected computers. So, like, if you look at this, it's, uh, it's a, um, uh, uh, how to say, science fiction writer and a scientist at the same time, there is a small chance that someone somewhere will run some kind of algorithm that will be able to improve itself so quickly that we don't even realize uh, how, how powerful it, it will become. But again, as I said, today the, the level of uh, technology is so below this uh, this threshold of self-awareness and self-improvement so there are examples like for example alpha zero or or alpha goal where the machine plays against itself and learns to actually like become a better player than uh, the best human player and what people say that there is nothing that prevents us to build a killing machine that will train on itself to kill the the best uh, the most effective way possible but again, I, uh, it, all, it, it all was tested in a very, very uh, restricted environment, like game with very uh, simple rules. The environment in which we, uh, we live is much more complex, so it's not a chess or checker or go uh, board. It's, uh, it's a messy, big world with a lot of uh, noise, uncertainty, and unpredictable Events that can happen all, happen all the time. We don't have anything uh, even close uh, uh, to replicate the same uh, result as we have got uh, uh, with Alpha AlphaGo or Alpha, AlphaZero.
0: Yeah, one one really, I think I think particularly with respect to AlphaGo, you know, people who sort of like you know aren't experts but follow the tech news and feel that they're somewhat part of that world were were quite surprised um, because Go was was considered by sort of amateurs to be this and probably by quite a few experts, but they would have been smarter about it. Uh, but as something that would take a really long time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even even given our current pace of change, really that long time for a computer to be able to beat, you know, grandmasters at and then suddenly it happened. And people were like, wow, like what? It's not so much particularly that although that is very significant. It was like, if we were that wrong about this, and how long that would take, you know, what else are we potentially wrong about? And one one of the things that I like, you know, as, as someone sort of just who reads the headlines find really interesting about the prospect of of these basically these very sophisticated programs, uh, they might, we might sooner than we think, be in a world where we're being presented with very complex uh, policies, like mm-hmm. do this to cure the person's cancer from from machines where we don't have any idea at all, you mm-hmm. know, how it arrived at that conclusion or why it's right and so this is going to put us as humans in this relationship with machines that we're all we're all accustomed to having towards human experts right when the doctor says take this pill it'll cure your your problem most of us don't we know we we believe the doctor's right we have no idea why and we just carry on without feeling like anything uncanny or problematic happened but Mm -hmm. but if it were a machine doing that it seems to change the dynamic in the way we the way we respond
1: yeah yeah I I agree that uh, some uh, machines will be and they are already are more effective in some and some uh, kind of work where humans are dominated and now for example like people who who uh make the di- diagnostics of uh, different kind of uh, sicknesses looking at uh, x-ray pictures or other kinds of a- a mri and so on they they have to learn for ten years or so to actually look at the the picture and to decide whether it's kind of it it may might be cancer or not whether it might be this kind of uh, sickness or not and now we can just uh, train a deep neural network and it will look at those the same picture and make even better predictions that uh, that humans do and. People might think that now the machine will be able to replace us everywhere, but it's actually a very limited uh, uh, range of applications where the machine could easily replace a human. And most of the time, it's a kind of uh, activities where it's it, it's based on reflex, like human reflex. For example, uh, self-driving cars. If you think about how complex the whole um, uh, public transportation is, you think that it's we make so many decisions when we are driving to to not get into any kind of accident. But when you drive, you quickly realize that you can think about something else, you can talk about uh, with with people about something, and you still keep driving without any accident because. Your brain learns to just react into uh, onto red color of the car, of the car that you follow or red color of the of the lights on the intersection, and you just automatically make decisions. And when you can replace uh, so when you can replace actual decision making with using reflexes, this is where machine learning can replace you quite easily. So. This, um, this person who taught, uh, learned for 10 years to see different kinds of cancer on pictures, they don't uh, use any uh, advanced thinking. It's just they learned to, they, they look at it so many different uh, t- kinds of pictures and uh, read about so many different kinds of sicknesses that their brain like this decides. It doesn't take the person uh, like a day and different multiple calculations uh, to to make this decision they just look at, the, at it like this and decide yeah i think there is something here we have to make additional analysis so machine can replace this kind of decision making quite quite easily but if it takes any kind of like thinking log- logic uh, asking different people for different additional information making calculations this is where the machine is near, even is not is even near, not near close to uh, to replace us. So I, I don't afraid about humankind being replaced by by machines everywhere. There is a lot of uh, places where, for example, uh, it's important human touch, human contact. For example, in hospitals where people really need uh, personal care really need uh, affection, uh, like uh, empathy, conversation. So this is where machines will never replace us. And as I said, everything that takes uh, additional thinking, uh, manipulating different objects, different kinds of information in some non-reflex-like way, we don't have any theory in in AI that could bring us there uh, anytime soon.
0: It's really interesting. Your description of how we how we actually drive uh, struck me. It reminded me of a joke a friend of my brother's has about how the car knows the way, uh, and we often have this experience where we're kind of like, we don't, as you said, describe, you know, we don't think about it at all, and just suddenly we're at our destination. Mm-hmm. And you can even not remember, you know, the last 10 minutes of what you were actually doing. Yeah. Um so, moving on to the last part of the interview, where we talk about uh, going into the weeds a little bit about about self publishing. So, you've already described some of your your process uh, mm-hmm. for writing your book. Um, it was when I was researching for this interview, it, it struck me as, as uh, I mean, someone who works in particularly in this area and in progress publishing, how familiar so much of it was to me, um, uh, and how you did it all totally independently. One of the things, for example, that we've seen happen, and that, that like, you know, is often, it, it, it always seems a little bit surprising no matter how many times you see it, is that people will pay for books that they can get for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that people will help you improve your book. Yeah, um, a- a- Authors love it, but you know, as, as you've experienced, readers, readers love it too. They love, be- people like being able to help each other improve mm-hmm. the things that they're doing and it's it's sort of funny that we often i the thing i only the thing i reflect on most now is why is that something we find surprising um uh and and where that comes from but i wanted to ask you so very you've already explained a lot of how how you how you did it one specific question i have for you is around pricing pricing is a very tricky yeah. thing, not, not just in pub book publishing, but in, in all sorts of areas. And so you've got a Kindle edition on Amazon. You've got a paperback and a hardback on Amazon. You've got it up on lean pub using our variable pricing model mm-hmm. uh, in an ebook format. And I believe you've also got a, you've got a, an agreement to have a South Asian print version published. It's also self, self published, also self published and for, but mm-hmm. for, for a lower, for a lower price for the obvious yep. reasons that, you know, purchasing power parity and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you did you, did you do you have an overall strategy for how you're pricing all these different products? I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, the pricing uh, question was hard at at some point because uh, you don't know what your work worth is what is worth before you actually try to sell it, and um, I try to ask uh, my subscribers opinion about what would be the most uh, like reasonable price for the hardcover hardcover book and i actually created a poll where people could put their own uh, like opinion like for the price and uh, i have got about 400 participants in this poll and the the average was about $35, $34, $35. But uh, this is only if you exclude people who uh, suggested prices something like $3, $5, $9. Why I decided to exclude those? Because on Amazon, my uh, paperback book, just to print it, costs $12. Okay, so you cannot sell your book for less than twelve dollars, dollars. Otherwise, you have you will have to pay from your pocket for every purchase. So I excluded from the poll all uh, suggestions that are below the uh, the the print the print cost, and this gave me thirty three thirty five dollars. So um, I decided to uh, sell my book for more than than this thirty three thirty five because. Of the condition uh, under which uh, Amazon puts uh, book, uh, books uh, on their store when you self-publish. So if you uh, position your book, uh, like um, price your book at, let's say, $35, so 60% of 35, uh, it's about uh, $18 or 20 Then you subtract $12 dollars for print, so you you um, what left it's about uh, six dollars or, or or eight. So I decided that uh, if I sell my book in electronic format for fifteen dollars, it would make sense to uh, expect that I would earn uh, fifteen dollars from from paperback and hardcover as well. So all this printing and distribution. It's it's not directly related to the content. So if I price the uh, pure content in the PDF or EPUB format for for fifteen dollars, then I don't I don't see any reason to get uh, like f- smaller fraction of, of this by selling uh, paperback and hardcover. So I calculated that for forty five dollars uh, paperback. When Amazon will take its part and when it will i will subtract the, the printing cost uh, it will uh, i will um, what will remain it's fifteen dollars so I price it all formats in all count in all uh, countries where i self publish based on the same principle. However, I understood that in India, for example, i couldn't price it the same the similar way because otherwise the price would be way be way uh, higher than uh, thirty thirty five dollars it would be still lower than in the u s but for Indian reader, it would be uh, very very hard uh, as a price. so I decided to reduce my own uh, my own uh, share in the price of Indian edition and if in India I get about uh, five dollars for from every sale and so I decided to get fewer. Fraction uh, just to make the book uh, like uh, Affordable for for a typical Indian uh, Reader But even with this uh, people still find that uh, uh, The price of $25 is still too high for India Unfortunately if I put price any any even more below that there are two problems. One problem is that uh, my my fraction will become really t- tiny. And the second one is that um, if you sell your book in, uh, in the South Asian market too, for, for a too low price, uh, many of those books uh, got resold uh, back to, to Europe and United States, because the content is the same, the quality is, is high i didn 't want to sacrifice quality in India because for me, uh, building a quality product is uh, is one, one of the reasons why I, I do things. I never do something like uh, half bake it. If I work on something, I really expect a good quality result so i couldn't reduce the the price by reducing the quality and i'm not ready to reduce my own share even even more because it becomes not uh, it it becomes not fair for people who who pay 15 dollars for example on the In-Pub by when when they buy the book for the minimum of 20 uh so that people in, in other countries will uh Pay less for the same amount of content uh, they re- they receive. So it's not it's not an easy uh, answer like how to better price. I understand that for example I would get much more sales in India if I priced my book in something about uh, five to ten dollars. But it would be what they call garbage quality books like very thin paper, uh, very very bad quality binding, uh, all in uh, black and white because my book is is in color. So. I actually wanted to preserve all those uh, uh, good qualities uh, of, the, of the book on Indian market, but still try to somehow reduce the price without losing too much money f- from my pocket and without sacrificing quality. So to, I think $25 is what I can really offer without thinking that people in other countries pay much more for the same content. I think it's not fair.
0: And so you uh, had this... Uh email list, uh, basically of people interested in the book. And um, so when you published it on Amazon, it shot to the top of, of one or two categories as a bestseller. I believe machine learning presumably was one of them. And then not very long after that, uh, you were approached by enterprising publishers looking mm-hmm. to translate the book. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm curious to ask you about that. I think a lot of people can find when suddenly contract, they start encountering contracts and publishing companies and something like that. It's very exciting, but it's also a little bit a little bit daunting you don't want to get screwed by mm-hmm. know, bad clauses and stuff like that so uh when you started signing contracts uh how did how did you approach that did you did you get a lawyer did you read some self publishing blogs or use your common sense
1: no uh, i, I uh, was quite surprised that uh, the agreement that you sign is actually at most uh, five five uh, four or five pages And uh, actually, uh, there are two main parts in this this agreement. All other parts uh, are the same. Uh, The the, the two main parts is how the royalty is calculated, so based on what kind of uh, price uh, and what kind of uh, percentage uh, they apply to calculate royalty. And the second point is regarding the the, uh, duration of of the agreement. So um, I was contacted by uh, quite 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 quickly by Chinese, uh, Russian, and South Korean uh, publishers, and I saw that um, the duration that most of them well, well all of them proposed it was five years. So I, I think that it was reasonable. I didn't try to negotiate a, a, a anything below that so i think 5 years would include uh, this edition and the uh, second edition so i think it's fair and for the for the royalty part uh, i was quite surprised that european uh, model is very different from all, all the rest of the world especially from from let's say chinese or us or uh, south korean so in the rest of the world excluding europe the royalty is calculated based on the list price. So you, the, the, the publisher decides how much the book will cost in stores. For example, let's say they, decide, they decided in South in Korea that the, the list price will be $20. Then they calculate the, the royalty based on this. And you can negotiate if your book is a, is a, a bestseller. It's, it's already known in the world. You are a bestselling author. Everybody knows your name. You can negotiate something higher than than usual, uh, but usually royalty is something between they try to offer you something between eight and twelve uh, percent so most of the time people agree on something in between so ten percent royalty for someone who um, who is not very f- like popular as an author and it may be the first book and so on. So, I, tried, I usually try to negotiate something uh, close to 12, uh, and in many cases, I, um, I, 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 I actually succeeded in, in getting uh, this kind of uh, royalty, but I was really surprised that in Europe, they apply royalty to the bulk price. So the price that they uh, the, the the price that they sell books to retailers, and uh, so it's it's about half of the list price usually, but they apply exactly the same uh, the same uh, percent of royalty to the book price. So you can imagine that authors in, in Europe get twice uh, like half of what uh, authors get in, in other countries. And when I uh, saw that first time uh, in Russia, I was really surprised that they they, they actually proposed these kind of conditions. And especially in Russia, the, the market is much smaller and the prices are much much lower. So you can imagine that half of six, uh, half, like half of ten percent uh, applied to six dollars, uh, it, it's uh, it's it gives you like quite funny amount of money. So I I, I was interested in publishing in Russia basically because I'm Russian and I want my parents to be able to buy a book with my name on it. So it was my only reason and I actually insisted a lot on the quality of of edition. But uh, in China, in Russia, in Turkey, it's hard to sell books for something more than ten dollars, and most publishers will really try to pressure you a lot to agree on the on the least price of about six, seven dollars, which I always rejected because uh, I thought that you cannot produce a good quality book uh, for that will be in stores for the price of six dollars. So the pro- the production cost should be around maybe two or three dollars. It, it it cannot be of, of good quality. So I always insisted that the price will be at least $10, $11, even if in, in, in Russia and China in Turkey. And uh, usually uh, publishers agree, but they want to keep prices as low as possible because they can forecast higher sales. And for them, sales is the only thing that matters. For me, sales are much less of importance. What What's important is uh, quality uh, and uh, legacy that I will leave um, with this book. Maybe this book will survive several editions, I don't know. So I would not like that my first pub- ever published book in my life would be seen like a cheap, um, badly made uh, and... Uh, not worth uh, like touching even because it's so so low quality. So for me, it's important to have a projected uh, image of quality author and someone who can build quality products.
0: Yeah, thank you for that very excellent and comprehensive explanation of how all these different parts intersect and how they're they're mm. different in different parts of the world, I think particularly with respect to royalties, I think people are often very surprised to find out that um the publisher's take is you know say half of the sale price of a new book in a bookstore, and then the author's royalty is the percent it, percentage is applied to that half so yeah. if someone If someone sells a book for um if if a, if you buy a book for twenty dollars, the author's getting one dollar yeah um, and so you know people hear about oh it's it's a best selling book you know, it sold a hundred thousand copies and you think, well, you know, the author must be rich now. And it's like, well, well, that's like, you know, a healthy amount of money to make, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 you know, it's not, it's, you're not getting rich unless you sell many, many, many books uh, based on, based on that model.
1: Yeah. And uh, I actually, every time people ask me like, does it, is it worth uh, self-publishing and I definitely say, yes, if you can self-publish uh, in uh, as many languages as you can, uh, as you know, like, for example, I know French, uh, Russian and, and English, but I could not self-publish in Russia because uh, Amazon doesn't support self-publishing in Russia. So I, I didn't have a choice uh, other than uh, f- like, agree, uh, get an agreement with some, some Russian publisher but I selected the, the most respected and the most quality ones uh, but in France for example, in French edition of my book, I will self-publish on Amazon myself, even if I, I don't do translation uh, myself because I decided that, uh, that I can find people who will translate the book much better in French than than myself my French is good for day-to-day communication, but for writing books, uh, I, I don't think that i uh, as good in French as I would be in, in, uh, in Russian on, or in English. So I actually was lucky to find uh, people who, um, like, uh, uh, published author from France who was just interested uh, to work with me in, on, on building the French version of the book and uh, i offered him uh, to do it for 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 some reward but he he said that he would do it for just his own pleasure and for for for, for exchange of putting his name on uh, on the cover as a like translated from english by and uh, he actually does a fantastic job uh, he he already published in data science his book is uh, very well uh, scored uh, on amazon in france so um, I, have, I really believe that the quality will be uh, very, very good, and I also have another uh, person who will do uh, copy editing for some flat, uh, some flat price, not not so high. Uh, and myself, I know French, so I will be, will be able to do the third layer of quality check. And I really f- believe that the quality of um, French version of the book self-published will be no worse than uh, would be published by any any editor, but. Uh, I, I think that I will use exactly the same approach if I succeed for Italian and, and Spanish because in in Amazon you can self-publish uh, in Italy and in Spain. Uh, but for Germany and for German, I decided to work with uh, with an editor because German is much more different from from French and English for me to actually make sure that the translation. Is good that everything is uh, is consistent and so on. So, German was was an exception, and uh, also Amazon can self-publish in 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 Japan, <laughs> but I decided that I will will not try to even write anything uh, Japanese myself because Japan is so different uh, culturally and uh, tradition. Their traditions are so different from uh, from Westerners. So. I will wait for some good uh, Japanese publisher to to contact me and I already was contacted by by a couple but we are still in some very slow neg- negotiations so I expect that uh, someone more serious will contact me and the whole process will go faster.
0: Uh, we're approaching feature length here as I like to say in our interview um uh, and so I would like to say it uh before moving on to my final question um if you're interested In more of Andrew's thoughts about publishing, he's got a great post called How You Should Write Books in 2019 that I'll Mm -hmm. link to in the transcription for this interview. Uh, So my last question that I always ask people on this podcast is, uh, well, in your case, you used our Bring Your Own Book uh, Mm -hmm. feature. If there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you on LeanPub, can you think of anything you would ask us to do?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that LeanPub would fix uh, the problem that I have, but uh, the problem that I have with uh, electronic books is that uh, mathematics and math in general in electronic books is is very poorly supported. So, for example, uh, I cannot uh, publish my book for Android or for Kindle because uh, EPUB format supports uh, mathematics in form of MathML, and Apple on iOS and on Mac supports uh, MathML. So my book for uh, for iOS and for Mac is looks as well as good in ebook format as it's, it looks in in, in PDF uh, format but on amazon uh, or oh, sorry on uh, on android and on kindle i cannot do it because android, uh, google decided to not support um, not support uh, mathml so i know that you don't produce your own readers yet but if at some point you decide that you would like to build a reader you would be the first uh, company in the world uh, which could support MathML uh, completely without any flow in in electronic books. I contacted already uh, uh, several um, companies that uh, sell e- e-books. For example, uh, Kobo in uh, in in, uh, in Canada, and I described it to them that. Actually, I cannot sell uh, books for uh, Android and for Kindle because of this limitation. And they said that, well, they, there is so much they can do. It's a problem of uh, of Android. It's a problem of uh, uh, of EPUB and MathML. So we uh, we cannot do it. So if someone at some point decides to develop a reader for uh, Android and for uh, Kindle devices that would support mathematics uh, natively, just like iOS does, it will be the first uh, reader in the world for which I would adapt my, my book. Uh, well, like right now, people who write books that contain mathematics, they put f- equations in form of uh, PNG files, like images, So when you read an e-book and you try to scale up or scale down the font, the images remain the same size. So the the whole text becomes super ugly and just – I I didn't want my book to to look like uh, just a bunch of text uh, mixed with with some kind of uh, hard-to-read equations. So – yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Th- thanks a lot for we We love hearing, I mean, we don't like hearing that people have problems, but we like hearing the details of the problems that authors are having because that helps us uh, address them. If you write a book in LeanPub using our LeanPub flavored markdown or Markua syntax, mm-hmm. um, you can actually write math in LaTeX and that, okay. and that we produce good looking equations in PDF, EPUB and Mobi and on our iOS app and on our Android app.
1: Okay, uh, if you can send me uh, an example of a book and I would check it on Android app, uh, if, if it works for my equations, I would gladly produce a, a, a version for, for Android of, of my book. But I tested, I, I actually downloaded all uh, e-book reading applications for Android and I tested them all with my book And some of them just didn't uh, uh, render LaTeX at all. Some rendered LaTeX, but some uh, characters were replaced by rectangles. So there were, like, lots of problems. Uh, So i was really curious to test your your system and try to type some equations that are of, are of interest for me and see how it uh, gets rendered on uh, on Android.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll send you, I'll, I'll find an example of a Pub book and um, I will uh, maybe send you a link to where in our manual we, we talk about it in the Markua spec. Yeah,
1: it, it well. will be easy, easy to, to test. I will just put some equations that don't get rendered correctly and uh, try to read it uh, on on my Android phone, and if it looks okay, it will be great. I will prepare my book for uh, for Android based using your platform.
0: Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and if you ever have any questions, I mean, I, I confess I'm not the the technical expert on rendering math in our books here, but our colleague, my colleague Scott is. So if you have any questions about okay. anything, uh, feel free to email us at hello and Scott will Scott will answer you. Um, well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to do this interview. We covered a lot of very interesting ground and. I had a lot of fun. Um,
1: Thank you for inviting me. It was really a great
0: pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review this episode in iTunes and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Thanks.